The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Tonight we're going to continue the series of, of what it means to, looking at what it means to fear the Lord um, and consider the events of Easter and how they impact this idea of fearing the Lord. If you're keeping score at home, you know that this past Sunday was Easter. And uh, Easter is the day when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is, um, for all intents and purposes, the day that marks the victory of Jesus over everything that is not uh, good. It's, it's the day that we point to and look at and say that is where our hope is. The question that I want to consider with you tonight is what fearing the Lord looks like on this side of the resurrection, on this side of the empty tomb. Because in a lot of ways, it means that we no longer have to be afraid. But that doesn't mean, it's not the same thing as fearing the Lord, right? That's kind of what we've been setting up this whole series. Our text tonight is going to be Mark 16, 1 through 8. If you have a Bible, open it up. But I also have it up here on the screen. We're going to read along together, and uh, we'll get into this. So I'll start, I'll just read up here. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There will you see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It might seem like a weird place to end. This is actually where the Gospel of Mark in its original manuscripts ends. This is, that's the last line. Um, what's in your Bible is there's verses after that, but there's kind of debate as to whether that was actually originally in there or not. So for tonight's purposes, we're going to assume that that's where the Gospel of Mark ends. And I have to acknowledge that it seems a little weird for it to end right there, right? I mean, the rest of uh, the Gospels all end with Jesus doing something. He appearing to his disciples and saying, hey, I told you I was God. Everything's good to go. Uh, I'll be with you from here on out. Don't worry about it. Right? I mean, there's something to assure us after the resurrection that somehow someone saw him and it was legitimate. Not in the case of Mark. In the case of Mark, it ends with the women fleeing in fear and silence. And while part of me wants to address and get into why maybe Mark chose to end the gospel there, I think the bigger question for tonight is what were the women afraid of? This was should have been the best news they could have received uh, ever. I mean, really. There's, I can't think of anything that would have been better news. Um, so what were they afraid of in that moment? I want to I explore that. And in preparing for tonight, I considered a number of possibilities. Um, zombie Jesus being one of them. 
Um, seemed kind of irreverent and inappropriate for a series on fearing the Lord, so decided not to really explore it. Um, most of the possibilities, though, boiled down to this. I think the women were afraid because all of their expectations in this moment were completely shattered. And I think the scripture does a great job of telling us that fact. Um, you can actually put it back up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through this, but you guys can take a look too. It says, in verses 1 through 3, I don't know, okay. It says that Mary and Salome were on their way to the tomb with spices to anoint Jesus' body. Uh, it tells us that they were kind of talking about how are we going to get into the tomb? How, who's going to roll away the stone, right? The stone, in, in this case, would have been a huge rock that most people would not be able to move um, unless they were really strong or had something that they could use to gain some leverage, right? So verses 1 through 3 alone tell me two things. One, they expected Jesus to still be in the tomb. They thought the stone would still be there and that he would still be inside. And two, they thought that he would still be dead. They were taking spices to anoint his body. That was something that in these days you did to kind of fight the stench that came with the decay of a dying body or a dead body. Um, Verse 4 tells us, though, that when they arrived, they saw that the stone was rolled away. And the scripture is, very, is sure to mention that the stone was very large, which means that whoever moved this stone must have been quite powerful. And considering that the women thought that Jesus was still dead, I think that seeing this stone rolled away must have been a big shock. Maybe they were asking themselves, who would have done this? Who could have done this, right? That's a big piece of rock. How did, how did they get that out of the way, and why would they do that? For someone to move a stone that was that big, they, have to, they would have been very motivated to get at whatever was inside. Why would they do that? What were they, what were they going to do to what was inside the tomb? What were they going to do to Jesus' body? Having witnessed the events that led to the crucifixion, I can imagine that this process, this thought process, led to a very dark place and a lot of fear. I don't think there were a lot of people who, who would have expected someone to be trying to get into the tomb for any good reason. When the women enter the tomb, maybe expecting to find um, a mutilated body or nothing at all, thinking maybe someone had stolen the body to take it and who do who knows what with... Um, they're instead alarmed at the sight of a young man dressed in a white robe. And the fact that they're alarmed tells me that whatever they expected to find, it was not a living young man. <laughs> you don't go to the tomb of a dead person to find living people, right? I mean, that's dumb. And when the, young, when the young man speaks to the women, he tells them that Jesus is actually not here anymore. He is risen. Which, still to this day, I'm kind of like, what? Like, imagine, imagine that for a second. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. You watched this guy be crucified. You watched everything that happened before it. You watched him be put in the tomb. Crucifixion is not something people survived. That was the point of it. It was in a certain death. So to, to hear that this person that you just watched be executed is now alive, even if, even if they had been paying attention, uh, 
to Jesus as he had told them, I'm going to die and I will rise again, even if they had been paying attention. In this moment, I think that the sheer weight of this message would have totally blinded them to whatever they had learned earlier. One of the commentaries I read on this passage uh, talks about how um, in this moment, the message that Jesus had risen actually would have uh, caused these women a lot of fear. It says, A devout Jew would understand the announcement that the resurrection had begun to signify that the end was at hand. In the Jewish, Jewish faith, the resurrection of the dead was to happen on the, the day of final judgment when God would come back and uh, once and for all bring his faithful to heaven and cast all of the sinners into hell. So in this moment of, hey, the resurrection, Jesus is risen, the women could have been thinking, oh, no. That means that everything is about to go down. Um, and my guess is that judging by their reaction, they run from the tomb bewildered and trembling. They, they expected that Jesus might have been back to judge them and condemn them. That, that's a very real possibility. I think all of these expectations you can pick up from the Scripture— and some of them, the scripture does a pretty good job of actually addressing in the moment and kind of alleviating the fears that come with it. Um, I'm not going to get super into it, but one of the things you can, you can notice is that um, the angel says to tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is back. Peter, you know the story, was one of the most like zealous disciples of Jesus in the Bible. And he, before the, the death of Jesus, Jesus tells him, Peter... You're going to deny me three times before the end of this night. This is the night when it all kind of, when Jesus gets arrested. He says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, no way. I will die before I deny you. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Um, so, of course, the night progresses. Jesus is arrested, condemned to death. Peter, later, people are going, hey, weren't you, didn't you hang out with that guy, Jesus? Didn't you know him? Peter says, no, didn't know him. And then again, they say, are you sure? Because pretty sure we saw you with him. He said, no, 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 really. Wasn't there. Don't know who you're talking about. And then one last time, they say, we think you were with him. And he says, no, I was not with him. And he actually swears, like, I did not know him. Um, if I was Peter in this moment, I would be feeling pretty low. That Jesus told me I was going to do it, and I still did it. And I think Peter, above all, all people had every reason to fear judgment in this moment, to fear that Jesus coming back would have meant nothing but bad news. But I don't read this, this passage and go, I think Peter's in trouble. I don't think the angel was like, hey, go tell the disciples and make sure you tell Peter that Jesus is back. Um, that's, not, that's not the tone I pick up. Uh, I think that in this moment, the angel is kind of addressing that fear of judgment a little bit by saying, hey, make sure you tell the disciples and, and Peter, don't exclude him. Don't leave him out. We all know what he did, but don't, don't let that get in the way. Whatever other expectations these women may have had, uh, we know that the women fled the tomb that morning trembling with fear. Whether they thought someone had taken the body or that Jesus had indeed risen and was back to condemn all of the sinners, these women were unable to grasp the significance of the empty tomb because they were blinded by their fear of the unexpected. They went into the situation thinking they knew what was going to happen and it didn't happen. In fact, it was the exact opposite of what they thought was going to happen. 
And instead of seeing that as a good thing, they were, they, they were afraid. You and I sitting here tonight have the luxury of, of knowing that the rest of the story, we, we know the rest of the story. We understand that the empty tomb is in fact good news and that it means that God is alive. That's what the point of Easter is. We celebrate the fact that God is alive. And this is good news for us. Equally true, but perhaps something that we still wrestle with, is that the empty tomb means that God cannot be contained. And I want to unpack this a little bit. Until the resurrection of Jesus, you can take that stuff down now. Until the resurrection of Jesus, um, our relationship with God was pretty much a constant cycle of messing up and having to atone for your sins. Glad that doesn't happen anymore, right? Um, to do so, to atone in, in, in a pre-resurrection world, that it, was, it required a sacrifice of some kind. You maybe have read the Bible and thought, man, why are all of these sacrifices happening? That was kind of the way that you made up for the wrongs. And I actually have a picture of the Jewish temple. So there's kind of this, you see the all, uh, burnt offering altar? That's kind of where you, you made your sacrifice. That's where you kind of said, hey, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm giving you this, and hopefully you can forgive me for that, right? Um, you had to go to the temple to do this. And at, the, at this temple, there were a bunch of different courts. You can see the court of the Gentiles, which is anyone who wasn't Jewish. And you have the court of Israel and the court of the men of Israel, the priests. And then on down, you see at the very left there, there's this room, the whole, or the right, excuse me, the Holy of Holies. Each of these kind of successively smaller places is designed for a quote-unquote, you know, a holier level of person. Um, the innermost court, the Holy of Holies, um, was separated from the rest. I don't know if you can read it, but it's separated from the rest of the, the temple area by a thick curtain. And this was a room where the presence of God was said to dwell, the actual presence of God, the power and majesty of God. And only the high priest, one person, was allowed to enter this room once a year on a day called Yom Kippur, which is kind of the national day of atonement. It's when the high priest goes in and basically uh, says sorry for all the things that all of us have done wrong. Um, to enter this room, the Holy of Holies, the high priest had to do a bunch of different things to purify himself. That's part of the, all those laws in the Old Testament. Some of that is around how to like enter the presence of God for the high priest. Um, and if the high priest failed to do so, to purify himself properly. Tradition says that he would actually die in that room. Stepping into the presence of God unprepared meant death. And as far as I understand it, it was because that by nature, anything that was unclean was incapable of existing in the presence of God. It wasn't that, you know, I guess God was like waiting in the curtain room, like trying to get people. It was that God was simply just, he, his presence, his essence is too, it was too powerful. It was too perfect. It was too pure for anything that was less than that to be allowed in. And I don't get the mechanics or the physics of how it worked, but I gather that it was not something you took lightly. In fact, as a Jew living before the time of Jesus, I can imagine that you were probably straight up terrified of God. 
And the idea of having to enter this room, of having to enter into God's presence, was a nightmare. Because you knew you couldn't, well, how am I going to become pure enough for that? It's almost a guarantee that I will not be ready for that presence. The reason I share this is that the book of Matthew tells us that immediately following Jesus' death, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in two. And by all accounts, this would have been very difficult for a person to do. It says that even two horses tied at opposite ends could not have ripped this curtain. I, that's, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, and although it's not explicitly stated in the Bible, the, the, the list of uh, things that go into making the curtain, some experts uh, estimate that it would have been about four inches thick of like woven animal hair. So what, what does this mean? I think this means uh, to a Jew, the torn curtain would have meant that whatever tore it, whatever ripped it, was extremely powerful. It also would have meant that whatever was contained in that room was now loose out of it. Which, if you were listening to what I said about what was in that room, that could be a very scary thought. And if you're willing to accept that the force behind the rolled away stone and the torn curtain, which have a lot of similarities, both of them would have required an extremely powerful force, and both of them meant that whatever was in whatever was contained behind those things was no longer there. If you're willing to accept that what caused these things is God, then that means that God is incredibly powerful. Physically speaking, he ripped a curtain and he rolled away a huge stone. It's pretty impressive. But these events are not just feats of physical strength. That's not the point. They're symbols of victory over sin and death. The curtain that kept us out of God's presence because of our sin, the curtain that represented the impassable barrier for most of us, was ripped apart. The stone that sealed the tomb of Jesus and the tomb of all of us had been rolled away. Through Jesus, his death when the curtain was torn and his resurrection when the stone was rolled away, God had overcome the only two things that kept us from him, sin and death. And that's really good news. If you're willing to accept that God was the driving force behind this, it also means that God does not operate on our level of understanding. He's not bound at all by our expectations or what we think the world should operate like. He is, in fact, the God of the unexpected. And I'm here to tell you that if this scares you, which it probably should a little bit, that you're not alone. Also here to tell you that you don't need to be afraid of this power. Yes, God is sometimes incomprehensible, We've all experienced that characteristic of God where we're going, what? How did that happen? How does that work? We can't explain it. Sometimes we just can't explain it. And we have to learn to live with the fact that there is something in this world that will not conform to our expectations or 
be something we can explain or grasp. I think that's what it means to live in fear of the Lord this side of the empty tomb, is to recognize that you're talking about a God that overcame death and sin. I don't know if anyone really can grasp how big that is, but you can imagine the power of death. God has conquered it. And unlike the villains, maybe that we talked about earlier, the villains that I tend to fear are the ones that are all out to disrupt my expectations or create situations in which I don't know what to expect. We can trust that whenever God does something we don't expect, it's because he has something better for us. What I want to ask tonight is what it would look like for us to stop letting our expectations get in the way of experiencing the good news of Jesus. The women at the empty tomb, they didn't understand what they were hearing because they they couldn't get past the fact that they, they thought he was dead and he's alive. They thought he'd be here and he wasn't. That got in the way of them being able to celebrate the good news. What would it look like for us to not let the fear of the unexpected get in the way? What would it look like for us to live without fear of the unknown? To actually expect the unexpected, to look forward to the surprises that God has? I don't know. That's what I want I want you to think about it. I don't know what that would look like for us. To stop thinking that we know what God is doing and somehow can manipulate it or control it. To recognize that God is bigger than anything we think he's doing. The thing that I want you to know tonight is that the curtain is torn, the stone has been rolled away, and that means that God is alive and he's on the loose. He's no longer contained to the Holy of Holies. He's no longer contained to the tomb. He's alive and he's on the loose. And what does it look like for us to believe that that is good and to try and participate in it in our day-to-day life? Let's pray. God, we... um, It's hard for us to wrap our minds around exactly the significance of Easter. Uh, we, We know that it is good that you have shown us over and over again that you do, in fact, love us. And that the fact that you are more powerful than anything we can imagine, and the fact that you do not live according to our expectations or this world's standards is, um, in fact, good for us. Help us to know what it looks like to appreciate that, to be okay with that, to, in fact, um, love that aspect of you instead of fear it. Help us to know what it looks like to live boldly in your presence, no longer letting fear get in the way of our relationship with you. It's in your name we pray.